Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you and keep looking up. As I laid on the mattress, I, I dozed off. I immediately started feeling like I was dreaming. I had a dream that my son, my eight-year-old son, was standing beside my bed. I remember in the dream asking him why he was there, who brought him there, and how to get there. And I guess I had enough consciousness to know he shouldn't be there. So I immediately woke up, and when I did, there was this figure standing beside the bed. Had long arms, skinny-like fingers, skinny arms, wings above its shoulders, and its face. I could see dark, large circles where its, where its eyes would be. And it was late in the evening. We're coming around the first curve, and the first curve would be near near graveyard, actually. And as we come around the curve, we slowed down, and the headlights hit something in the road. What they hit was a, a form. And for a split second, I thought, oh, it's a large bird in the middle of the road. It kind of stands up a little bit. With just one movement, it shot straight up. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Somewhere in the Skies. I could not be more excited to bring today's guest on to talk about his new film. You've seen him. You've heard him before. You've seen his movies. Seth Breedlove is with us today, and we're going to be talking about his new film, The Mothman Legacy. Seth, thanks so much for joining me today, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Of course. You have been a freaking machine lately, getting the word out about this film. But yeah, I guess... Before we really get into what Mothman Legacy is about, this isn't your first Mothman endeavor. So I got to ask, what about this one is different from your first one? And um, yeah, give us a little a little idea of what we're dealing with then with Mothman and Small mm-hmm. Town Monsters and now. Well, yeah, I mean, then I was when we made the Mothman at Point Pleasant, I was working a part time job still. So, <laughs> so like that's like the biggest thing is like I was able to focus on this full time but um i have really fond memories of the mothman and point pleasant like making that movie and during the press for that movie we were constantly being asked if we would be making a sequel to it and i always said no because to me that story the the mothman story was that 66 67 wave of sightings i didn't it wasn't that I didn't – I was aware there was other stuff. I just wasn't as interested in the other stuff as I was 
everything that led up to the collapse of the silver bridge in, in 1967. So I had always said no. Um, and going beyond that, like, you know, the, during that time period, Tommy, we had just had our son. He was three weeks old um, when we stayed in Point Pleasant and did the premiere and all that stuff. So he was tiny. Like it was, it, it was a very special time in my life. And then the movie came out and did just bananas. Like it, it did so well, it was ridiculous. Um, and I was just, it, it, I didn't think we could top the experience, honestly. Um, but over time, like we started right around that time, we started getting contacted pretty constantly by witnesses and people who claim to be witnesses. And I started to realize very early into um, 2018 that a follow-up was probably going to be necessary. Um, we, we just didn't know what that would be. And we still didn't, even when we started filming this movie, we didn't know what that would be. So what, what brought me back to it was this idea of story evolution, the evolution of stories and how they're told. And it's something we've been exploring for a while. It's something we've been exploring really since uh, maybe boggy, probably more like Mothman. Uh, if not Mothman, Mothman is the first time we started talking about that you know, vocally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think all the movies are about that, but in, in Mothman, we really started to, to pull at that thread. Uh, and so Mothman legacy in a way is, is the evolution of that. It's interesting too, because now that I've said that, I just realized that from Mothman of Point Pleasant to Mothman legacy, every movie in some way is exploring that theme storytelling and like the evolution mm-hmm. of story, except Bell Witch. So I might have gotten it out of my system with the Mothman legacy, but which does not really go into the evolution of story. It's more about history and just telling a scary ghost story. Um, yeah. But uh, what brought me back to it was the evolution of story and the idea of uh, exploring the history of Appalachia and, and the, um, the Scots Irish immigrants that sort of settled the area and, and the native Americans, the first nations people who lived there um, and how, the Mothman story was sort of always a part of that part of the country, whether it was called the Mothman or a Banshee or whatever. Um, And so that was, that, that was what drew me back to it, you know, and, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that there were so many witnesses contacting us that I knew we wouldn't have any problem with that side of the story. Like we would not have, there would be no dearth of, of witnesses to talk to about their encounters. Right. And that really surprised me. And I do want to ask you a little about those eyewitnesses who came forward. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, moving back to Two Point Pleasant, uh, we I want to talk about the cultural aspect, too, because that's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Um, but uh, Jeff Wamsley, the guy who runs the Mothman Museum in in uh, West Virginia. Yeah. Can you maybe for our audience who aren't familiar with who this dude is, um, who is Jeff what does he do in the town? And uh, yeah, maybe give us give us an idea, paint a picture for us of what's going on in West Virginia. Uh, well, yeah, Jeff is uh, hair. That would be <laughs> hair. Um, no, Jeff is – so Jeff's the curator of the Mothman Museum. And um, I first met Jeff in November of 2016 and I've since become – uh, a friend of the family and my wife's friends with his daughter. And, and like, we, we both have kids and all this kind of stuff. So he's, he's a really cool guy, but he, um, other than John Keel, uh, and probably more so than John Keel, Jeff Wamsley has done, um, 
so much for the Mothman story and the, and the history of the Mothman and really just paranormal history in that part of, of West Virginia, if not all of West Virginia. Um, he is a, um, a, 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 an archive, a human archive of information uh, relating to that case. He's interviewed witnesses. He's interviewed, um, you know, experiencers and, and uh, basically investigators, like anyone that's had any kind of, connection to the Mothman story he's talked to. Um, and he's been running the Mothman Museum uh, in Point Pleasant since the late 90s or the early 2000s. Formerly, he was a record store owner. Um, and he still is a teacher today. Um, so he's he's very connected to Point Pleasant. Uh, and, and really, I don't know that people there realize this. I, I know a lot of credit goes to the Mothman himself, but Jeff has probably... Uh, deserves the lion's share of the credit for the the economic revival that that Point Pleasant has seen over the last few years. When we were there a couple of weeks ago for the for this for the Mothman Legacy signing, keep in mind we're in COVID times. Um, there was an endless stream of people into that museum. There were people walking up and down Main Street in Point Pleasant. Uh, there's little stores and shops that are open all over the place uh, and, and little independent businesses that are doing really well. And all of the credit for that goes to the Mothman and the Mothman Museum and Jeff. Right. And I mean, even in this film, Jeff mentions like this thing draws in tens of thousands of people, which is incredible to me to think of. Like you look at something like Roswell, you know, if that craft hadn't crashed there in 47, mm-hmm. that town would probably be gone. I mean, let's be honest that there's yeah. not much going on in a small town like Roswell. And um, it draws hundreds of thousands of people every year to that literally lets the town survive for that year until the next festival. So that's a yeah. big part of all this as well. Right. Yeah. I think um, hundreds of thousands is probably accurate, if not more. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you get to think of like the one day we were there, we saw, thousands of people coming in and out of there. And I'm not exaggerating. Like it's just an endless stream of people. And, um, and uh, the, the festival draws 15,000, you know, annually, it's the second biggest event. It's the second biggest draw in the state of West Virginia. Uh, and anymore, the way we, the way it is, like if people are talking about West Virginia, they talk about the Mothman. It's just like part of the state's history. Uh, it's like right. country roads and Mothman. Those are, <laughs> that's what everyone knows about West Virginia. Uh, so yeah. yeah, you you can't understate the uh, the value that 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 the Mothman gives to that state, right? Country, I would say, country folk song in the making for sure. Yeah. But um, Appalachia. Now, this was really fascinating. You know, the first kind of maybe quarter to to half of the film really dives into the history of the area, like you mentioned, um, and. Of course, like I, I was thinking Native American. Okay, I totally get that. But like you mentioned, uh, the Scots-Irish settlers, that really threw me for a loop, something I never even would have thought about. And you mentioned uh, at the top here about banshees. Mm-hmm. Again, like something I would never attribute to something like the Mothman, but this seemed to be one of the things you really focus on. So could you tell us a little about um, your theories on could could Mothman possibly be what this – you know, sort of Irish Scottish folktale of the Banshee is. Yeah. And I've been trying to figure out like one of the things about our movie is we, our movies just in general is we don't, we don't draw conclusions for viewers. We kind of like put the, put the facts out there and let them make up their own minds about things. And one of those, one of those threads in this movie is the Banshee and the Scots Irish 
settlers. It also goes into like the Garuda and, and other folkloric and mythological creatures. But what drew me to it was this connection between the, the folklore and mythology of the people that settled the land and how connected that seemed to be to the Mothman. And so what happens is you have to, I'm not necessarily making the point that the Mothman is simply a, a remnant of a, of an oral tradition, you know, that dates back to, to Scots Irish. I think there's more to it than that, but you have to wonder how much of the folklore that came over with some of those immigrants that settled that area, how much of their folklore has infused itself into that story, the Mothman story. And does that play out in ways like the fact that we consider the Mothman a harbinger of doom, or that's become such a key part of the legend is the, is the Mothman considered a harbinger of doom because it showed up around point pleasant for well over a year prior to a bridge collapse. Um, and is that is that the reason, or is it because there's a banshee that, that people can connect back to, to that they may have heard about as children from their, you know, their Irish grandmother, uh, this creature that that supposedly heralded oncoming disaster and tragedy. So when another creature shows up with red eyes in the '60s, all of a sudden people start saying this thing might be here to warn us of something. Does that play itself out uh, in some way? It's all that's all what drew me to to this story. Um, there's the, the Heather talks about screech owls, the screech owls that supposedly show up at, at people's windows prior to a tragedy. Um, there's, there's a lot of that mythology baked into uh, the Appalachia and their culture and their folklore. And we left a lot of stuff out, man. Like Appalachia is a really strange place. Um, and obviously it's not just West Virginia. This stretches from, you know, Alabama up to, up into New York. Um, and you can you can trace that those Appalachian roots, the Scots Irish roots, all the way along that range. And they everywhere you go, you have that kind of weirdness. But there is there is something about West Virginia that seemed to seems to invite it. And and it's interesting, Heather, part of Heather's interview that didn't make it into the movie, she talks about how West Virginia, the West Virginia portion of Appalachia seems to keep a hold of those roots better than some other areas. So you lose, you lose some of the cultural influence on, on the region in places like New York a little bit, you know, that you, you lose that in the way people talk and their accents. Uh, and you might lose it a little bit in the way they tell stories and the stories they tell. Um, but the, uh, I completely forget where I was going with that, but it was going to be a really killer point. <laughs> oh, no. It'll come oh, back wow. to me at some point. No, man, Banshee. And uh, well, I think the the big thing I think to focus on with this sort of um, lens that you used in the film is that oral tradition plays a huge part. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm on Oahu right now and I just did an interview with a master ghost storyteller who's native Hawaiian and um, and has lived here his whole life. And to hear someone say, like, everything my people know was never written down. We were never told we were never like, you know, raised to write things down Mm -hmm. and uh, the stories are just passed on and on and on. And of course things are going to change with time and evolve. But uh, I thought that was fascinating. But also the other part of that is uh, bringing in different tradition. I mean, Hawaii is extremely 
ethnically diverse. I mean, you mm-hmm. have um, a big Filipino culture, uh, Japanese culture, and those stories start to become the biggest stories on in Hawaii. Like mm-hmm. the faceless woman of Japan is probably one of the the most famous ones, and it's not even a you know a Hawaiian story. So I, I was going to say fact- they they seep their way into the like the literal fa- that not the literal but the fabric of the region and. That was where I was going with that was I was going to mention granny witches, which originally I really wanted to get into granny witches in the context of the Mothman story, because I think there's some sort of connection there, but I'm not sure what it is. But you have this there's there was a whole like five minute section originally that got into the religious aspects of Appalachia and how the region was was Scots Irish. But you had in the 1800s these these like or early 1900s even you had spiritualism sort of coming together with um christianity in this strange way so you'd have like what they what they referred to as granny witches which would be just someone's grandma but she's like mixing herbs in the woods and casting spells or whatever and she's also going to church on sunday and you had like there it's just such a weird it's a weird melding of cultures and belief systems and some of that plays out in the way stories are told and in the movie the way that all sort of culminates is when lyle says when when the mothman shows up and he these aren't the exact words but when the mothman shows up in the 1960s it wasn't that strange to a place that had that had that that were telling stories of of glowing red-eyed banshees and screech owls and granny witches for for decades right so i just think i think there's something to that you know like the the mothman was always a part of that region it just may have been receiving a different you know title up until until that point right yeah and again you you always wonder chicken and egg like is does the phenomena evolve with the storytelling Mm -hmm. or the culture and and vice versa and you know again that's stories like we it's a little bit of both it gives and takes but um one of the stories about mothman that i'm sure most people are familiar with is the 2002 richard gear film uh written by rich hatem who you had in the film which is mm-hmm. awesome um you know it's very rare that you get to get the inside story of a writer who created something that was so big and that movie was huge at the time so i'd love to ask you um what did Richard bring to the table? What did you find most intriguing about what he had to say? And what impact did that film have on, I guess, maybe the town or just the overall perception of Mothman? Yeah. What was that all like? Yeah. I mean, so I have to start that out by saying like, I I have in recent years sort of given Rich's movie, uh, the Mothman prophecies, the credit for being like my introduction to the paranormal. So I, I didn't, I, I'm not the type of guy who was into this my whole life. I didn't get into it until mid two thousands. I would have been in my late twenties when I started getting an interest in this stuff. So like, um, to, you know, like Rich's movie came out in 2002. Zach, my director of photography, you, you've met Zach. Um, Zach and I went to see the Mothman prophecies movie probably four or five times at the dollar theater. Like we were obsessed with that movie. And, and so it was, um, it was vital to me to have him involved, but I had also been aware that he was a fan of the Mothman of Point Pleasant and we had emailed back and forth. So I knew I could get him, <laughs> um, but it was vital to me that we get him involved because I wanted him to be there to talk about that 
pop culture aspect of the Mothman story post-2002. And I was also aware that he himself was responsible for a lot of what gets passed around as Mothman history today. Like he had fictionally written a lot of these things, especially the Blackbird of Chernobyl idea, which I would like to say, I hope we put to bed with, with the, the Mothman legacy, but I'm sure it'll keep coming up. Um, But having Rich involved was really important. And, um, you know, we, we set up, so we were in LA filming on the trail of UFOs. We were there to film an interview with Greg Bishop. Um, We had two other interviews though. Ellie was with us. We were interviewing her and then we had another interview. And then we had um, an interview with Forrest Burgess actually for, for the Mark of the Bell Witch. He's one of our key people in in the Mark of the Bell Witch. So it was kind of a weird trip because we were out there to film interviews for three different projects at once. And actually we did a uh, forced interview in one room of this rental where we were. And then we did four um, riches in the next. So it was like back to back. We did their interviews for two different films that we were nowhere near filming yet at that point either. Um, but the most surreal thing to me about this whole thing has been watching rich react to um the movie, the Mothman legacy. I told, I just had a conversation with him yesterday. Um, it was, it was a, I did a, a zoom interview with the guys from astonishing legends and him. And and we just talked about the movie and the making of the movie and everything. And he went on like a, like a three or four minute uh, tangent about how much he loved the movie and why. And I, I like was this close to the tears. Cause like to, you, you, th- I would, I'm sitting there like listening to him talk, talk about it. And I could very easily cast myself back to Zach and I sitting at movies four in Canton, Ohio, watching his movie, you know, like, and really getting into film. And that was a very formative point in my life. Cause I was really into filmmaking and that's what Zach and I bonded over was like filmmaking. And to hear him like talk about how much he enjoyed the movie was Obviously, uh, probably one of, if not the highlight of this whole thing, one of the highlights of it. But just having him in the movie, he's he plays such a key role. He's got so much um, unique insight into the Mothman story, and then he has his own theories on what's going on. Like he's and he shifted. Like he started very early on in his in his looking into the paranormal. He was very much. Um, I think he's a lot. Like, he was a lot like I am now very ground level doesn't necessarily buy into a lot of the paranormal stuff like more. He tends to go more like nuts and bolts at that point in time. He tended to go nuts and bolts when it came to this kind of stuff. And now he shifted like dramatically. I think he, he very much, you know, is in the, um, I hate to speak for him, but I think he'll, he, he has some, some opinions on it that would push, you know, the boundaries of like quantum physics and all that kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's he, he over time he's gone in a, in a very different direction from where he started. So having that insight was was really important as well. That's awesome. Yeah, and again, the idea that our thoughts and theories can constantly evolve on all of these phenomena is extremely important. And you know, I think there is a very trickster element to all of this, where the minute we think we have an answer of what Mothman could be, uh, something else gets thrown on the table. And that's awesome. I think the journey is so much more rewarding, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if we knew the answers, it it probably wouldn't satisfy everyone, first of all. Everyone's still going to have their own theories on what it is or isn't. But um, yeah, I always find that fascinating when people 
are willing to change their mind and adapt to a new set of, you know, either scientific rigor or just storytelling, you know? Yeah, um, I, think I think that's, that's probably where he's coming from too. It's like that. Yeah. And there's some similarities there between Rich and John Keel um, because you've got that same shift happen that happened with John Keel You know, like Keel mm-hmm. did not start out where he ended up. He didn't come into this with like his ultra terrestrial <laughs> hypothesis sort of formed. Um, he, he, he formed that over time and over interacting with, with some very um, weird elements of, of, this particular case, the, the Mothman case, I think that's probably the reason he, I think Keel is more well known because obviously because of the Mothman than, than anything else he wrote or uh, studied. But I think it had, it had the biggest impact on him personally, at least from, from my point of view of any of the cases he wrote about or, or investigated, it seemed to have a lasting effect, even though he tried to outrun it, at certain points in his life, especially, you know, from the eighties to the nineties, I think he was kind of like getting away from it as much as he could. Um, when the movie came out, it, it brought him back around and it was kind of like, I think, I think what I like about that is it's almost a redemptive story, not just from point pleasant, but for, for Keel and, and his relationship with the Mothman. you know, like his, he had kind of done everything he could by that point to put some distance between himself and the Mothman story. And so when that movie came out, and he traveled to Point Pleasant and, and saw the how much they were embracing the story and the statue and all that. It was, I think, it it played a role in him uh, viewing, if not his entire career, at least that particular case in a new light. You know, a less um, less negative light than he might have been viewing the whole thing as at that point. Right. Yeah. And see, maybe that's what it was supposed to be all along, you know, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, he passed away not too long Mm -hmm. after the movie came out. Right. So, yeah, that is kind of a a full circle moment, I think, which is cool. Um, Well, in terms of John Keel, I mean, we know about his work on all of this. We know, uh, you know, Gray Barker was um, involved at one point. And this is kind of, you know, amongst some other UFO events where we start to have the lore of the men in black start to pop up. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was really cool in the film. You introduced someone that I'd never heard of. And that was Mary Heyer, who was a reporter in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had some interesting run-ins as she was constantly covering the Mothman story. So yeah. Could you tell us a little about who Mary was and uh, why you decided to use her in the film? Yeah. I mean, Mary to me is more important to, to, you have to be careful how you phrase this. Uh, Mary to me is in, in a lot of ways more important to the Mothman story than Keel because once Keel was done with it in 67, once the bridge had collapsed and he was, he was already by, by the point in at which the, the bridge had collapsed, he had kind of like stopped coming to Point Pleasant even at that point in time. Um, but once that bridge collapsed once the silver bridge went down he was done like he did not return to point pleasant until the movie in 2002 had come out and he came for the mothman festival um so he was done in point pleasant but mary was still there and at that point in time she was writing for the athens messenger which is they say it's a nearby (coughs) it's a nearby town but it really isn't that close like athens is 
45 minutes, close to an hour away from Point Pleasant, but apparently there everything is kind of spread out. So, so she wrote for the Athens Messenger and she had an office in downtown Point Pleasant and people would come to her with their, not just their Mothman stories, but UFO encounters, men in black stories and all that kind of stuff. And then she would almost act as a clearinghouse for Keel. She would go, you know, she'd pass that stuff on to Keel. A lot of the cases that you read about in the Mothman, uh, in the Mothman prophecies are, are stories that were passed to higher that higher than passed on to Keel. So higher deserves to me, the lion's share of the credit for the investigation that went on into the Mothman story and definitely for preserving those stories. Um, she, she had a newspaper column called the, where the waters mingle, um, called that because Point Pleasant sits on the confluence of the canal, canal river. I think that's how you say it, canal river and the Ohio river. So she's, it's, it's, you know, it's where the waters mingle. It's the confluence of those rivers. Um, and her, she, it, uh, over time, basically that column just became her reciting strange activity around Point Pleasant and, and much of West Virginia. And um, there was an incident uh, sometime during 1967 um, wherein she was visited one night by a um, mysterious man in black who came into her office. Um, I believe he asked her if she had a pen. And then when she handed him the pen, he acted as if he had never seen the pen, a pen and didn't know what to do with it. Um, really weird incident. Also had a creepy smile um, uh, and eventually left. And that's become like one of the more famous parts of the Mothman story. The coolest thing about that is you can still go to write down, uh, by the state theaters is that office, her old office. And there's still a, there's still a sign out front that says higher on it. So you know where you're looking uh, when you're down there, but yeah, Mary was a, a key played a key role in the whole thing. She passed away prior to the release of Keel's book. So not long after the bridge collapse, um, not even 10 years, she, she had passed away. Um, but you can find, you know, there, there's the John Keel archives online. You can find some of the letters that her and Keel would write back. And it becomes pretty obvious. She's she's really feeding him a lot of the information. Mm. Yeah. One of the forgotten people, I think, of all of this. So it was so cool to see you highlight her in the film. And um, the other big aspect of the film that we haven't really touched on yet is, uh, like you said, the stories. And you had some incredible eyewitness encounters in this film that stretch far beyond just Point Pleasant and everything. And I was wondering, is there one story, Seth, that you covered that kind of really stuck out to you as unique or uh, that you may have thought you knew where this film was heading or the stories were heading, but completely threw you for a loop? Anything really stick out to you in terms of the eyewitness accounts? Yeah, if it's cool, I'll do too, because... Um, sure. So... So the first has to be Marilyn, uh, and she's the first witness you actually meet in the movie. Um, and the reason this one was unexpected and really took the movie in, in some unique places was I, I had set up the interview with Marilyn because there was a story I had heard of hers. And I have to give credit here to uh, Heather Mosier, who who assists in, in all of our research stuff on these movies and helps line up interviews. and everything. She, She's been amazing. Um but Heather and I had talked about Marilyn had had a sighting that happened in the seventies where her and a friend from school were driving home from a dance or something. 
and they heard something land on the roof of the car and they had to try to, to, to get rid of it. So they were like flying down these roads and like trying to shake it off the roof of their car. Really interesting story. Um, and we had plans for how we were going to present that in the film and like probably an animated sequence, but we were trying to figure out a way to do it live action. So we were going to have a lot of fun with that sequence. Um, and then offhandedly, she told this story about as a child seeing red eyes outside of her window at night. And then she went into the story about the car and all that. And then we shut down the cameras. And as we were getting ready to leave, uh, she starts talking about how her dad was in a plane crash a week after her sighting and how she believed that the Mothman was appeared to her as a child to warn her of her father's um, the, the plane, the plane crash. And so we flipped the cameras back on obviously. And she sat back down and told us that story um, that was so unexpected. She, she basically as a child woke up one night, heard a, a sort of a strange noise outside of her window. And this, I think she says this in the interview. Um, she, she might mention the, the, a uh, strange like giggle or, or odd, odd sound outside of her window. She wakes up, she looks out the window and there in the yard are these red eyes looking at her. And two weeks later, her dad is on a TWA flight out of Cincinnati. I can't remember where they were flying. He's on this TWA flight out of Cincinnati that crashes into an orchard on takeoff. And and a lot of people died, like uh, 18, somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 18, 20, 25 people died on this plane crash. Her dad did not die, but he was next to someone. He actually pulled someone off the plane who was who could have died, whose wife died on the plane. So this was a, a huge tragedy. And in doing my research on this, it's, it's one of the most well-known plane crashes in American history. Um and her father lived through it. She sent me the newspaper article yesterday that shows him in his hospital bed. Um, anyway, that was so unexpected. Like that was just not something we knew was even a part of her story. Cause I don't know if she didn't feel that it was as, Im- as impressive as the, the creature on the roof story or what, but it was such an interesting story to me. So that, that, in a way inform the whole, the whole movie going forward. Cause I think you begin with a, a harbinger story and you sort of end with a harbinger story. And the, that, that those book ending stories are the ones I, that resonate the most with me. Less Odell, um, who's a friend of mine and was actually in the Momo, the Missouri monster. He's one of the posse members, uh, helped us carry all our gear and everything. Dude's awesome. Um, and he also runs a, um, a group called West Virginia case, uh, which is like, uh, creature i can't remember i always do this it's some sort of like they investigate like paranormal cases in west virginia um super cool guy but he has he has a story about um and it just occurred i think in 2019 if if i'm not mistaken it took place in 2019 when his father was um basically dying his father was um you know going through a lot of health issues and less and his brother had basically moved in the house to, to help take care of him and one night, Les uh, woke up in the middle of the night from a nightmare. He had had this nightmare that his son, uh, who shouldn't have been there, was standing next to his bed. And uh, he couldn't figure out why he was there. And and it really scared him. And he wakes up. And when he wakes up, at the foot of his bed is this creature. And it's a, it's around four feet tall, uh, wings, and and it was gliding in the air. And he, he also said 
that it sort of like was uh, a little bit like a VCR, like when you have a VHS in or something, it had like a static look to it, um, which I thought was really interesting because I've experienced something similar to that, not with a winged creature. Um, but anyway, he, he said it glided across the room, never touched the ground, glided across the room and went through a wall. And um, about, I think it was a day and a half later, his father died. Um, so he connects, you know, that story with, with what happened to his father. And and one of the, one of the key parts of that is that his father had uh, claimed to have seen the same creature a couple of years before, which you catch at the very end of, of that interview, which is really interesting. And then he draws it constantly. Uh, he's still like, even today, he's, you, he drew it for a movie. You see him drawing it in the, in the movie. Um, he draws this creature, this winged creature. Um, like almost obsessively. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Those are my two favorite stories, but there's, I mean... I love Jack Patrick's story about seeing it in the abandoned building, mostly because he's got this thing that he talks about staring at it for 15 minutes or whatever. And I think that's really yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. I, cool. I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, staring a Mothman in the face. I mean, you can't get much better than that. Um, well, one of the big aspects about the film too, Seth, were these recreations that you mm. did, which were, stunning to look at i mean any special effects artist should be like reaching out to you guys right now about yeah. that so um it really amplified the stories that were being told because i know as well as anyone else like it's some it's it's one thing to just sit down put a camera in front of someone and have them tell a story but mm -hmm. then to kind of get that interpretation from the artist making the film is so important. So could you tell us a little about what the special effects process was for this film and yeah, how you guys came to kind of design them according to the witness accounts. Yeah. Um, the, so obviously we, we filmed during COVID. So it created a ton of challenges as it is for everybody. We had filmed 
four or five of the interviews in 2019, but the movie got went through numerous delays because I was doing post-production on, on the trail of UFOs, which you were a, a part of. Um, and as, as I was doing post-production, it just kept getting pushed further and further back, getting back out and filming. And it got to the point where we were supposed to film in March. And then obviously everything shuts down. We didn't get back out until May. Um, so by the time we got back out, there were so many restrictions in place and people were so nervous about being around one another and still are um, that I ended up shooting the bulk of the recreations myself, um, just a one man crew on two of them, Ron Lanham's and Les Odell's actually, I had Aaron Gaskin helping me uh, and actually I'm playing less in Les's recreation. So don't let that turn you away from the movie. But um yeah, it was a really intricate uh, process uh, where I, because I was filming alone, I could not rely on on those recre- recreations being <clears throat> um, just it, just uh, intrinsically interesting visually. So I had to come up with different visual elements for each one that would sort of, you know, c- catch a viewer off guard. Uh, for like Les Odell's, we did the rain. Uh, it's raining outside um, for Jack Patrick's. There's this theme that I ran with visually of like everything turning, um, which was based somewhat on the fact that he was pushing a bicycle when everything happened. So you're in the spokes of the, the wheel and you're turning, but also his world was somewhat turned upside down when he saw that creature that night. Um, so we, we introduced all these interesting visual elements to, to each one of the recreations Um and then Santino Vitali, who does our effects work, um, came in and just did did all the creature work that that is is really stunning stuff. The most exciting thing about the movie, from a filmmaking standpoint, standpoint for me was that we were able to do all the recreations ourselves. So typically, we had to rely on uh, animation, and the animation has always been great. And and there is some CG effects in this film that are separated from the live action stuff like that, that aren't a part of the live action recreations, but all of the major recreations were shot live action. Um, and, and whereas with like the, the original movie, the Mothman of Point Pleasant, five or six of the recreations are like two minute long animated sequences. We didn't have to do that. We were able to do this all in camera. So that was really exciting. And, um, and presented like a ton of challenges because I'm not Zach with a camera. I'm not, I'm, I don't fancy myself like a cinematographer. Um, so to have to do that all on my own um, with, with like nieces and nephews and cousins and stuff like that in the movie was, was a little, little rough, but uh, a lot of fun at the same time. I can imagine again that you can hear it in your voice, how much the uh, creative process still is fun. And I think mm. that's what's most important when it comes to this stuff, because you deal with some heavy stuff in your films and mm-hmm. some of these people's lives, they're traumatic events to a lot of people. I deal with that in the alien abduction realm as well. So um, to give, to justify the story you're being told with such accurate and uh, extremely well done animation, special effects, recreations, I think is what makes this film. Uh, I'm going to be honest, one of the best you've had so far. Uh, if you want my personal opinion, I just I was blown away from the first minute to the last minute. And oh man, I won't say anything, but the end of this film is uh 
really, <laughs> really That's shot spot. in my bedroom, shot in my bedroom too. Broad daylight bedroom, and that that ending shot is like if to to me that's the real um, that's like the one where you can see the the talent of like Santino on display because he took a shot that was really pretty pretty bland because we didn't have anything to work with and turned it into something really cool. Um, but yeah, that the. I'm excited that people are responding to this one, especially the look of it. Um, I think there is like a unique look to this one that stands apart from some of our other stuff. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, Well, that's all the questions I have for you, Seth, but I've got a few listener questions if you're willing to stick around for this. Cool. Cool. Awesome. And um, again, this is such a supportive community of podcasters. I can't stress that enough, how amazing it is. So a lot Mm -hmm. of these questions came from other podcasters who are itching to interview as well. But um, here we go. Andy from That UFO Podcast asks, what are some of the myths you could bust around Mothman? Anything you can think of? Oh God, now he's asking this and I'm going to, I probably have dozens (laughs) and I can't. Well, I mean, the thing to me, like I just don't buy into the Mothman's connection to the Silver Bridge. I never, I like, I never had because the idea is right. The Mothman showed up uh, thirteen months prior to the bridge collapse, and then there's this bridge collapse thirteen thirteen months later. First of all, it wasn't thirteen months that he was he was sighted in in like October or September of 1966. So that's, that's more like 15 months from, from the first sighting to the bridge collapse. And then the sightings don't stop with the bridge collapse. They, they're just, the reporting on them ceases and talking about them kind of stops around point pleasant. But as far as, as you know, there being a connection to the silver bridge, I, I, I hesitate to make it because I don't actually see that connection for myself. I think we, we write that onto that story because there was a tragedy, you know, at a certain point during a year where the, where the Mothman was sighted. Um, there's a lot of myths about the Mothman that I can probably bust. And I just cannot think of them right now. I'm terrible. That's totally fine. Man. No, no, not at all. But I think you stress the most important thing is uh, the, the bridge collapse, which now everyone connects. And then that's when you start to build onto this idea that Mothman is a harbinger of doom. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the first flying saucer event uh, with Kenneth Arnold back in 47 he said that these craft looked like saucers skipping off a body of water. He didn't say they were saucer shaped, but then look, everything after that, a misquote, I guess, in the newspaper of flying saucers, everyone saw flying saucers after that. So again, it's kind of building onto that story and having it uh, influence everyone's accounts thereafter. So you have to wonder, and I think that's a really cool thing. Um, And that's huge you know, that the bridge collapse is not part of it. Cause a lot of the mainstream, that's all they know from the movies. So mm-hmm. um, that's cool. Um, all right. Yami from the cryptid chat podcast asks Seth, what is, what is it about Mothman specifically that you think draws people to him or it or her? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just did a whole interview with Latino review about this and we talked about it for like 15 minutes. Cause that was like, it, it, that question came at like the perfect time today and then because we had just been having this discussion about that in in our in in one of the group threads on the STM uh, group on Facebook. Um, I I personally 
this is going to be comical coming off of someone who just claimed that there was no connection between the, the Mothman and the Silver Bridge. But I personally believe that it is that 1966-67 story that that excites people. It's a it's a it's a three act structured story with a beginning, middle, and an end, which you do not get in cryptid or paranormal stories traditionally. You know, like usually it's more like what what you know, you see with something like Boggy Creek Monster, where it's these sightings that keep going and, you know, there's no, there's multiple people involved. The, the 66, 67 wave of sightings involves like some key characters. Like there's these people like, like Keel and Hire and, uh, and, and the Scarberries and the Mallets. And then you've got this sighting of the Mothman. You've got all these other elements too. Like from a story standpoint, that, that story has everything. It's got men in black and UFOs and excitement and horror and tragedy. And I think that at least initially is what draws people to the Mothman um, because as a creature, just as a creature, there's nothing that really separates the Mothman that much from, you know, like a, a Thunderbird or some of those other traditional stories. But because of that 66, 67 wave, you have Mothman taking on the role of a harbinger of doom or, um, or a creature who's warning us of oncoming tragedy. Either way, he takes on this identity that might not have existed without that that wave, without that story. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a perfect – it's almost a screenplay written without having to have a screenwriter, yeah. I guess. Is- yeah. Put it. But yeah, and I think it again it's it's sort of a gateway into all this, you know. We hear about it from the the infamous story of the bridge and everything, or the movie, and mm-hmm. then you can really start to focus on the individual stories of those who have cited it. So I think yeah. that's pretty cool. Um awesome. Well, Lake on Twitter asks, have um have you ever did you ever have any patterns of uh electronic disturbances or anything when you've been in uh, in West Virginia, Point Pleasant, any interesting stories you can so, share? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the thing that you hear about with, so there's two, two places you hear about that constantly. One is Adams, Tennessee with the bell, Witch. we experienced nothing there relating to our electronics um, with the Mothman, with Mothman and Point Pleasant, supposedly when film crews or like paranormal investigating groups or whatever, come to Point Pleasant, they run into all sorts of like electrical interference and batteries draining and lights turning off and all this kind of stuff. We, during the making of Mothman and Point Pleasant, experienced none of that. And we were there for extended periods of time. However, during the making of, weirdly enough, Terror in the Skies, we did not experience this again during the Mothman of Legacy. This was only during Terror in the Skies. We filmed two interviews that are in Terror in the Skies in the State Theater on Main Street in Point Pleasant. And one was with Ken Gerhard and the other was with Allison Jornlin. And during both interviews, we experienced two really bizarre. One of these things is not that bizarre now that I know more about what's under the stage at the state theater, but um, we experienced two really bizarre. uh, I hesitate to call them phenomena, but strange occurrences. Um, During Ken's interview, we were besieged by flies Um which was really 
it seemed odd at the time. I mean, they were everywhere and, and they came from out of nowhere, but there were all of a sudden these flies all over us. I've since learned that there are sewer issues under the stage there. So that's more than likely what was happening there. But during that interview, we kept having his microphone go out, um, which was weird. And then during Allison's, the batteries, we would put a battery on a light and it would drain almost automatically. And this happened multiple times to the point where we, we were forced to do, uh, we were forced to run um, extension cords to the lights because the batteries were draining so quickly and they were full, fully charged. Um, and one thing about that state theater that's strange is that um, tra- tragic and strange after the collapse of the silver bridge, you know, you're talking December of 1967 is a really cold day. Um, they brought the bodies for identification to the state theater and put them in the state theater. And I believe they were in that theater for at least two days. Um, they turned the air conditioning in the building on full blast. And that's where the bodies were left for identification was in the state theater. Um, so there is a tragic history to that building. Um, I don't know that, that that's what drained our batteries, but that's the only thing we've experienced in Point Pleasant is, is our batteries draining in the state theater and Ken being covered in flies to the point where when I was, when I was cutting his interview, I had to cut around the flies landing on his face. Like it was that bad. (laughs) Oh man, that, that I'm sure that was tough. Yeah. Well, again, just running with that whole winged creature thing. Now you got fly swarming everywhere, but um, I didn't know that, that they stored the bodies there. I mean, that's just, a plethora of paranormal, you know, supernatural possibilities mm-hmm. as well. So that's interesting. You do have yeah. to wonder. Um, well, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned Allison Jornlin, who mm-hmm. is very well known for having investigated Mothman sightings in Chicago and areas around there. Yeah. Uh, we have another listener question here from Rick M who asks being from Chicago, I would like to know if there have been any MIB or intracold like activity going along with all of the sightings we've had in Chicago. Do you know anything? Um, I know you're working on a project that takes place, you know, over Lake Michigan and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Do you think we're dealing with the same creature from West, West Virginia and in Chicago, Seth? I don't, I don't know that there is a connection so much as they needed to brand it something and the media sort of dubbed it the Mothman. There are some okay. similarities between what's going on there in that, what people are seeing occasionally does seem like just some sort of large bird or something, but, but more often than not, the sightings that are happening there do take on like a paranormal nature, um, mm-hmm. you know, or people are talking about the creature being so black that it's like staring into nothing and that kind of thing. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I don't know that we're dealing with the same phenomenon as what happened in Point Pleasant, but at the same time, I don't think there was one, phenomenon to blame for for the mothman and point pleasant either i think there was a lot of different things happening that that contributed to the mothman story not just you know ignoring men in black and ufos i'm talking about what was responsible for what people were calling the mothman i think it was multiple things um and so i i'm really interested in what's going on in chicago we're going to head there at the beginning of december to make our movie um and it's going to be the first like full-scale investigative look we've done at one of these cases as it's happening we're not even really setting up advanced interviews other than we're we're going to interview allison we're going to interview tobias i'm going to make sure that you know we have those two talking about the case but um 
we're we're going there to literally get answers this time or any answers we can actually drum up in the, in the short span of time given to a film production um and we've never done that and i've always wanted to try to do that so that's going to be my goal with that with that movie and i don't know about like injured cold or ufo activity taking place i mean it's chicago so there's going to be ufo activity but i don't know how much is taking place in connection with with the um the so-called mothman sightings yeah and i know uh tobias uh personally invent uh researched the Chicago O'Hare UFO incident, which mm-hmm. is very famous now. And um, also winged humanoid creatures, I believe being cited in that same area. So again, you have to wonder it, the same with point pleasant, like was one door open where all different phenomena started coming through or peeking in, you don't know, but um, I, I can't wait to see what you guys do with that. And we should mention in uh, Mothman legacy, you do post theories on what Mothman could be according to each cultural background mm-hmm. and whatnot. I thought was really cool as well. Um, we'll let definitely let the viewers question those theories themselves. But um, the Bigfoot Society podcast on Twitter asks, what is it that you hope that viewers of the Mothman legacy will take away from watching the film? Oh, just a sense of like uh, the importance of story <laughs> um, like that. I think that's the most, uh, that's the, the theme of the movie. Um, if you look at, at Ashley and her dad and Ashley and Jeff Wamsley, you know, that there's two generations there and she's grown up with this story being told to her and, and she's seen the positive effects of that story on not only her own life, but the, the people in that town. It's interesting. I'm friends with Ashley on Facebook and like yesterday, her husband posted a picture of their son and, and said how excited, um, it'd be Jeff's grandson is every time he sees his pawpaw on, on TV. And that is because of the Mothman, you know? So there, there is a, uh, this stuff that we grow up with, these, the stories we grew up with, it might seem at the time uh, to be so unimportant or such a, a tangential part of our upbringing later in life, you really start to appreciate that stuff. And um, you can take that, the movie looks at it in, in a much bigger way, you know, with generations and cultures and uh, the cultural heritage of people. But um, on a ground level, it's really about, you know, telling telling stories to your children or, or, or grandchildren, grandchildren or whatever it is, and the importance that, that that has, you know, that that brings with it. Absolutely. And I think also uh, the focus on the individual, you did such a good job of putting the microscope on these people in the film and how the events affected them again. Mm -hmm. Like it's cool to hear a story about it. It's the same with UFOs. Like how big was it? What did it look like? Great. Like what happened? But how did it impact your life thereafter, your belief systems, the, the community, everything around it. So yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating approach you took in this film. And, um, I loved it, man. I I, I can flat awesome. out say, like I was, a, I'm a huge fan of this movie. Fan of everything you do. My my listeners know that. But uh, uh, our last listener question here comes from Scott on Twitter, and he asks, I guess I'd be interested in how Seth and his team stay objective throughout the whole process, from discovery all the way through to the final edit. I mean, you've covered so much paranormal phenomena cryptids ufos in all your time doing this stuff like how do you guys how do you go day to day after you're hearing these profound stories from people and uh yeah what's it like buying coffee in the morning (laughs) when you just interviewed someone who said you know they were abducted by aliens or they saw a winged creature that 
you know, brought about destruction. Like things are easy for us because we don't have, like we don't set out to convince anybody of anything. So, so I find it easy to treat witnesses simply as people who have a story to tell. And you, you, I believe that most of the people we interview 100% believe that, that what they say happened to them happened to them. I don't, I don't write it off. And I, and I hate, I also have said recently, I don't like saying what I just said. Like there's an aspect of saying that, that, that I bristle at, cause it, it does sound like I'm questioning their sanity or something. It's, it's not that at all. Um, I've had weird things happen to me as well. So uh, when it, when it comes down to like making the films, we don't try to put our own spin on things because that's not what we're supposed to do. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, this, better than anyone like as a as an objective reporter or documentarian or whatever like that is your job is simply to to show things in the in the way that they're in the most honest way that they can be you know told the most objective way they can be told that that's what we try to do with the movies things change a little bit with like on the trail of like i feel like we can integrate our own opinions into, into the filmmaking, into the storytelling a little bit more because it's usually being told from per, first person perspective and on the trail of is being told from Shannon's perspective on the trail of UFOs of Shannon and on the trail of Bigfoot's me. And you can kind of hear things from our perspective. So there's a little bit more of our voice being found in there, but in the films, we're really trying to keep ourselves out of it. So it's just whatever, whatever the theories and opinions are that that is coming from either some sort of historical you know, account or it's coming from a cultural, you know, standpoint or something. Um, it's interesting too, to see the difference between something like this is kind of getting off the topic of what he just asked, but it's interesting to see the difference between something like um, the Mothman legacy or the Mark of the Bell Witch. So the Mothman legacy is a movie about a phenomenon. It's not about, it's, it's not about like one case or one story. It's, it's a much bigger, broader look at the phenomenon of the Mothman in West Virginia. It's similar to what we did with Terror in the Skies or um, the Bray Road Beast. Whereas we make other films like um, uh, Minerva Monster or Beast of Whitehall or Momo, where you're, you're basically just retelling a story, you know, and we don't get too deep in like Momo doesn't, doesn't uh, filter things through the lens of like Bigfoot. It's, it's not, it doesn't bother with that. It's just telling you a story about this family who encountered a creature behind their house. That is the mark of the bow, Witch. like the, the mark of the bow, Witch is, is like sitting down at a, at a dinner table or in front of a fire, I guess is a better example and having someone tell you a spooky story. So it's interesting. We like, we do these, there's two different ways we do this. And, and those seem to be right now. Anyway, those seem to be the two, ways in which we do it. And the only reason I bring it up is we made both these movies back to back and the differences couldn't be more apparent when you're, when you're able to go from one literally directly into the next, you know, in the editing process. Um, But it's, I do find it easy to remain objective also because I'm pretty skeptical of everything myself. So it's, it isn't that I'm out to debunk things or any of that. We don't, we don't bother. Like that's not our job. Um, But but simply uh, retelling stories and and putting things in in people's own words. There's an importance to that too. I know there's this idea that like if you um, 
if you don't do everything in your power to like get at the truth of what these people are saying, then you're somehow not journalistic. Like you're, you, then you haven't done your journalistic duty or whatever. But, um, you know, the the fact is most of the stuff you're never going to know if it happened exactly as they're claiming it happened. You're never going to know right. it happened 50, 60 years ago or whatever in most of these cases. So our, our end of the day, our job is to capture history in a bottle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you're right. Every story has value, yeah, even if we can't prove it or disprove it. Um, it's part of it. It's part of this entire thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I, I, again, I think witness testimony is a lot more important than people give it credit for. And um, without it, what would we have to study? We wouldn't have UFOs to try to find data on. We wouldn't have Mothman to try to, you know, whatever, capture it or just, you know, just to figure out what it is without right. these reports. I couldn't agree with you more, man. Um, well, let's talk about what comes next. You mentioned Bell Witch. I know you got the new... Uh, uh, small town monster squad. Like, tell mm-hmm. us, you are this that guy with the balls constantly in the air. You don't even take a moment to breathe when a film comes out, and you are a machine, man. So, what comes next for small town monsters? Um, yeah. So, w- on Monday we start er, we start filming on the trail of UFOs, Dark Sky on Monday, mm-hmm. um, which is our look at w- returning to West Virginia. Um, our look at West Virginia history. Um, we're also going to get to explore a little bit of like project blue book and some of the bigger picture UFO stuff, but we're taking a different approach with on the trail of UFOs going forward. Um, the first season was a blast. It was episodic. It was great. It cost me an absolute fortune. I think you can see it when you watch the movie that it, it cost a fortune because it's, we're jumping locations six times in every episode or whatever. And you're, you're seeing the entire country. It just, it cost a fortune to make it. We're making indie film here. So it's at a certain point you realize that you, you got to rein it in a little bit. Um, so what we're doing going forward is making these movies um, that are sort of set in specific locations, but we'll, will broaden out the the bigger picture of ufology. Um, and we're also trying to get a little more investigative in what we're doing um, now. We've set the stage for UFO lore, where, where UFOs stand. Now we're going to start looking into it for ourselves and, and kind of finding new angles to some of these old, old cases. Also, just in general, I don't think people realize the amount of UFO activity that that took place in the state of West Virginia from like the 1950s into the 1980s, um, and that's a, a huge part of this for me. So we're gonna we're gonna start on that on Monday. Beyond that, uh, Mark of the Bell Witch is ready to come out. We're gonna launch that in December. We're going to go back to the self distribution model. Um, so we're gonna self distribute that sometime in December. Uh, to, it'll come out right around the same time as the 200 year anniversary of John Bell's death. Uh, the trailer for that should be dropping sometime this week. Um, and then um, I'm really excited about, by the way, um, that movie pushes like our visual style as far as it's ever been. Um, you know, Zach did all the, the director of photography work on the documentary. And then Santino uh, was actually my DP on the, um, on the recreations and, and Santino, by the way, just finished working on um, mortuary collection. It's on shutter. Um, he was the, he was the effects, one of the effects artists on that. So I want to make sure I rep that because it's, it's a really cool movie. It's like an anthology, a horror anthology. Um, and it's getting a lot of press. Like people are really digging that movie. Um, Santino's was a key part of that, but you guys, when you see this movie, you'll, 
You know, I've always had issues with paranormal, with like ghost movies, with like ghost uh, reality TV. It's all ghost hunting, right? Like that's all Mm -hmm. we really see is some element of ghost hunting in in those stories. This is not that. This is a a ghost story being told to you. Yeah, yeah. So Mark of the Bell, which will be out in December. And then next year, we've got uh, a whole bunch of stuff coming out. We've got How of the Rougarou, uh, On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Journey, which we filmed this past summer. Um there's the, yeah, on the trail of Bigfoot, the discovery on the trail of Lake Michigan Mothman. There's, there's a lot happening and, and small, t- you, you mentioned small town monster squad. So <clears throat> we announced that like last weekend, as far as like what it is, but we're really starting to expand on what it is. And uh, I'm really excited about that. It was originally, it was originally supposed to be a, um, just simply like a members only section of our site with like some YouTube videos and stuff. But it's uh, we were contacted by YouTube like a week ago about joining up with their beta. So at the point where we had already sort of prepared to do something else entirely. um, Yeah. We were contacted by, by YouTube about being part of their membership beta. So you go on YouTube on our YouTube channel and you can click this join thing. And then you select the, uh, the, the level you want to be at. And you get basically like a ton of different content. We're launching. There's multiple series involved in this. There's like eyewitness reports, um, investigative reports, production diaries, um, uh, uncut interviews. Like we just launched uh, David Weatherly's uncut interview from On the Trail of UFOs on there. It's this massive, like hour and a half long interview with David Weatherly about UFO history. Um, and then there's tons of live stuff. The biggest thing is it's supposed to be a play a key part in on the trail of going forward. So when we go to on the shoot next week, we're going to be going on night ops, you know, every night, including in like Flatwoods and some of these historic locations. And we're going to live stream them. So you can be a part of that on there and take part in it. Uh, Location tours, live Q and A's, all that kind of stuff. Small town monster squad is what we're calling it. You can either go to the YouTube channel for small town monsters and click join, or you can go to smalltownmonsters.com slash members to check that out. Awesome. I can't wait to see that David Weatherly interview for sure. That's, that's so cool. And let us know if you see the Flatwoods monster for sure, but uh, we'll see him. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. He's pretty, he's camera ready. He's good to go. Um, Well, let us know where can we find the Mothman legacy? I think it just became available to rent if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. Yeah. Where can we find it? It's on uh, basically all major VOD platforms, so like iTunes and Amazon, Google Play, uh, all those plat- – Voodoo, all those p- big platforms. Um, you can go to um, – I was going to think of what the the Genius link is, but now I can't remember what it is. It's, it's a really simple URL. We've been posting a lot on our Facebook page, so if you follow us on there, you'll find it. Uh, or smalltownmonsters.com if you want like DVDs and Blu-rays. And that's also like the best way to support what we do is DVD and Blu-ray. If you don't do that, uh, go on Amazon and leave a review because that's also kind of a big deal, this Amazon reviews, which yeah. I'm sure you're yep. aware of. <laughs> yep, I'm very familiar with that, yes. Begging people to, to yeah. review it extremely important uh for independent artists to get featured on certain platforms the more reviews you get the more they get featured so definitely everyone who's seen it or is going to see it go do that please but other than that seth man again i can't stress how much you up the ante every project you do this one really blew me like blew me away in terms of the quality of it and the stories themselves were just 
incredible. So I got to thank you, brother, for keeping Mothman alive, keeping the legacy going, and for everything you do, my man. And of course, for joining us on Somewhere in the Skies. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Hey guys, Ryan dropping in to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts, and that is Hysteria 51. Hysteria 51 is an exceptionally researched and hilarious weekly podcast that takes an everyman approach to the world of the weird. Bigfoot, alien abductions, hauntings, MK Ultra, Tesla, the Mothman, and so, so much more. Join hosts John Goforth, Brent Hand, and Conspiracy Bot, a cranky robot bent on world domination, who also happens to be the show's head researcher, as they examine a different topic each week and generally come to one conclusion the truth is out there, but you're not going to find it here. If you love the weird world we live in, get ready to love Hysteria 51. You can find Hysteria 51 wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.